All right, what is up, guys? Um, happy to see, again, a lot of you guys were with me like 12 hours ago. Um, and I realize we're all pretty tired, and I'm going to follow everybody and say, give me grace for my voice because it may not last a whole long time. Um, I was the guy with the face paint and the ripped shirt. Um, so if you couldn't recognize me from, from yesterday, that, that was me. And, you know, I, I, I try to clean up nice. My wife told me that I clean up nice. So I, I try, I'm kidding. She didn't say that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But yeah, man, I'm pumped to be here, and I'm pumped for just the sermon series of Romans. Um, Romans is typically like the general, that's my favorite book kind of book, and, and for good reason, because it's truly, truly awesome. Um, one of the biggest reasons why I love the book of Romans is because as a letter, it builds on each other. And so you, you might know this, but the Bible actually wasn't written with chapters and with verses initially put in. They were added around the 1500s. And so really that, that was just to help us organize um, how we can read and, and how we can really go about and, and see the Bible in a way that is helpful for us, but it can sometimes stop us from understanding the true meaning, and also it can stop us from, from looking behind and looking forward in the text to, to get a good understanding of what the text in front of us is saying. And I tell you this because everything that we've gone through in Romans to this point has kind of brought us to this point now. And so up to this point, Paul, the author of Romans, he's made a very, very strong case on just one particular issue, and it's that we're all sick. We're all plagued with the sickness of sin, and we're in need of help. And if you were, go to, the, if you were to go to the doctor, and you, you were actually physically sick, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor tells you, you know, son, I'm sorry to tell you, you have cancer, and you have six months to live. You know what you're probably not going to say? Man, I'm way better off than the guy who has cancer and has three months to live. I'm way better off than that person. No, because you have cancer. You're going to die in six months. You're probably worrying about that. So while the, the diagnosis for this guy might seem a little bit worse, the end state of death is, is inevitable for both of you. And likewise, if there was someone who had a diagnosis of cancer but 12 months to live, you probably wouldn't look at that person and say, man, that guy, man, that's awesome. I'm so happy for him. He's, he's doing great because he's going to die in 12 months as well. And so in the same vein, what Paul has done for the first two chapters of Romans is establish that no, no matter what your diagnosis may look like, whether it may seem better or worse, you may think you're a better or worse person, all of us are bound for the same death. He does this in chapter 1. We see the generally immoral person, right? We talked about that. Grant preached on that. And, he's, and for that person, Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against these people. He makes that clear. But then in chapter 2, he addresses the general good person, person that we may call or call themselves a good person. And even to him, Paul says, you're no better because as you pass judgment on others, you also actually judge yourself. And then finally, at the end of chapter 2, he addresses the general religious person. And for this, at that time, it would have mostly been the Jewish people. But I think we can see it for ourselves today. And he, th and he says to them, you think your, reli your religiosity saves you. You think because you do these religious things, they save you. But ultimately, they don't save you. You actually blaspheme my name to everybody else because you think that that saves you. And so what Paul has done is hammer in the first step of receiving the gospel. 
Step number one to understanding, comprehending, and receiving the gospel is to understand that you're in need of saving. And you're in need of saving because we have all chosen to go against God. And since God is the standard of good and the standard of true, when we go against him, we are ultimately against him. And, and we are in, uh, deserving of death. We are in evil. And so we get to chapter 3 finally. And, and there's really three main things that Paul does here in chapter 3. The first thing he does is finish his address to the Jews, to the religious person. So we're going to go over what that looks like. He's finishing that address. And then he really ties a bow around it. I consider this, if you were to be in a courtroom, his closing statement. He's going to tie a bow around this first argument. But then last, he introduces the next part of the gospel plan. And guys, for all the, uh, maybe the morbid or depressing, like, passages and feelings that we may have had over the past month, going over how sinful we are, I'm excited to tell you that I think things are going to start to get on the upslope, and we get to really look at God's redemption plan for his people, and we get to understand that there really is a solution to us when there really shouldn't be. So let me pray, and we're going to get into it. God, you're so good to, uh, to even give us your word to even reveal to us anything about you. We don't deserve it. So God, today, just reveal to us who you are. Let my voice just be quiet and your voice be big. God, move the hearts of your people here. Move my heart. As we just seek to love you, we just seek to be saved and to be sanctified and become more like Jesus. Help us in that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles or if uh, you have an app or whatever, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3, like I said. We're going to start at the very beginning, and we're going to break it up. So starting in verse 1, it says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So uh, at the beginning of the chapter, like I said, he's fin Paul's finishing the address to the Jewish people. And, and sometimes in Paul's letters, he'll have this little dialogue with himself. And it could be weird if we don't know why he's doing it. Um, and so really there's two reasons why he might do this. He might say, well, you ask this question, and then he'll go on to, to answer it. Or you may say this, and then he'll go on to answer it. Two reasons that he would do that. The first is because sometimes in Paul's letters, he is writing to people who have written to him. And so churches have sent out letters to him saying, Paul, we need help with this. We have issues with this. We need your guidance. We need your wisdom. Can you help us? And so in that case, Paul would be answering a question for that church in his letter. And the other reason 
is that he may pose a question that he anticipates the listener may have. And that's what I think is actually going on here in this little dialogue with himself. And so the first question is, what is the advantage of being a Jew? He says, what, what is so good about being ethnically Jewish? And this may not mean a lot to us, but obviously it would have impact to the people that he was writing to. But listen to the first reason that Paul gives for the blessing of being a Jew. It says in verse 2, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And that's just a fancy way of saying the words of God, the word of God. And that of all the blessings that the Jewish people were given, and some of which Paul will actually talk about later in Romans, the first one he says is that they were blessed to just keep and record God's word. And I find that to be significant. I think it speaks to how special God's words not only are to him, but also how special they should be to us. That it was a privilege just to, to copy down, down God's word, just to be a librarian for God. Like, that is special. But even though the Jews had God's word, some didn't believe. And so that brings us to the next question that Paul poses. He says, well, what does it say about God if his own people are unfaithful? Doesn't that mean that God is also unfaithful if, if his own people can't even follow him well? And so with this, I want to kind of pose a scenario, all right? So if I'm running for president, all right, and I'm, I'm running for president alongside party A, I wasn't going to say party, um, <laughs> uh, alongside party A, and, and I win, and now I'm the president, and I represent party A as the president, but along, but along the way in my presidency, I actually start to flip my ideology and flip my agenda to fit the agenda of party B. Party A and party B don't like each other. And so what is party A going to say if they see that their president has gone against their ways? Well, they're probably going to say, don't listen to that guy anymore. That guy doesn't represent us. Even though he's a leader, even though we've elected him and, and we thought we trusted him, he doesn't represent what we believe. The party represents and defines what the party believes. And family, in the same way, I know that there are people here today who have been hurt badly by people who claim to be representatives of God. And that hurts a lot. That's something particularly I feel like I'm really passionate about, but I feel like that should hurt us all a lot. Especially in the fast, past few years, there have been plenty of cases of people who claim to follow God or even people who actually do follow God who have made a disgrace of God's name. Adultery, abuse, stealing, people saying, I, I hate you if, if you believe this, I hate you if you're gay, I hate you if you voted for this person. And I know some of you here today swore that you would never go back to God or church because of what that pastor said or did. Or because of people who tried to get you to believe in Jesus but actually treated you harshly and it didn't really connect. Or maybe even your parents said they loved God, they took you to church, they did all these things and told you to love God, but in the end they actually only cared about your grades or cared about your sports performance. And I'm sure that puts a bad taste into a lot of people's mouths. But family, we cannot let the unfaithfulness of others 
or the unfaithfulness of ourselves to find God. If we created our definition of God based on how well you represent him or I represent him, that's a lousy God. I don't want to serve that God. I know myself too well. I can't define God based on that. And we cannot allow people and others in the world to define God based off of the performance of others. And the reason for that is because God has already defined himself. God defines God. Much like how the party defines the party, God defines God. And so where does God define God? Where do we see this? Well, and that brings us back to the word of God. That brings us back to the Bible. And that brings us back to why the word of God is so valuable. Because God reveals who he is through his word. And so it's our job to take his word to people. And while we certainly want to strive to be a good representative of Christ, we want that. That's good. It can't be plan A. It can't be the primary answer for the, uh, for the way to define God. And that's okay. Because where we're going to fall short in this, God's word is not going to fall short in defining and revealing who he is. And so to close out this section of Paul's address to the Jews, there's three more questions that Paul poses in verses 5 through 8. And they all really have a mutual theme. And it's an attempt to do two things. Undermine God's righteousness and excuse sin. And so I'll just read the, the, basically the summary of the three questions real quick. One is, since God is still glorified through unrighteousness, how can he be just to judge us for sin? The next is, since God is still glorified through unrighteousness, why am I being condemned for my sin? And then the last one is, since God is still glorified through unrighteousness, why don't I just keep on sinning? And these might seem silly to you, or these might actually have some merit to you. But ultimately, what they get behind is the condition of the human heart and the fact that we will do anything to excuse sin. At all costs, our, our, the, the flesh and our hearts will do anything to excuse sin. And I've found myself making just ridiculous, dumb excuses as to why I should sin and why that's a good idea. So then what's the answer? We have these conflicting views and we have this, this flesh that says one thing, but the Bible says another. And we live in a world where so many people reject the Bible, so many people reject God. And it can be kind of discouraging to just have this kind of thing caving in on you. And you might start to think, well, I'm in the minority. Should I even trust God? This is what verse 4 says here. I think it gives us the answer. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So even when every human in the world goes against God, God is still true. God is still right. God is still correct. And even when you're hit with every excuse to justify sin, just know that God is true and God will also provide a way out for that if we are in him. And that's available to us. And Paul finally ties a bow around this idea in the next several verses. And this is his closing statement that we kind of got at, at the beginning. The idea of God being good, man being evil. And we're going to pick back up here in chapter 3. And just note how strong the language is here as, as we read this real quick. It says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? 
No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their path are ruin and misery, the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And like I said, guys, we've beat this drum for the past month, and it's really not because we enjoy making you guys feel bad about yourselves. That's not the case. It's because it's absolutely essential to believing the gospel. If you don't understand this, the gospel makes no sense to you. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. The payment for what we have done is death. We have earned death. Death didn't come to us. We've earned it. And when God gave us his law, he didn't do it so that he could control us. He didn't do it because he just wants to kill our fun. He did it because he is true and he knows. But I've heard so many people use this kind of excuse for, for sin, and especially maybe a sinful lifestyle or characteristic. So they'll say, well, it's just who I am. It's just who I am. It's just what makes me unique. And, and why would God want me to not be me? Why would God want me to not be unique, be who I am? And the problem with this is that that is not who God has made you to be. God didn't make you to be hateful or selfish or greedy or lustful, deceitful or prideful. He didn't make us that way. That's not how we were created. We were created in the image of God. The image of the true, perfect, graceful, merciful God. You were made to be in relation with your, with your creator. And you were made to love his ways because his ways are worth loving. And that's not our identity. And we must reject the identity of sin because that is not us. That's not what we were created to be. But because of this rejection of our initial identity, we have kind of a problem. The problem is that we're separated from God. We talked about how God cannot be near and around that which is not true, not perfect. Because of his holiness, he cannot do that. And so we're separated from God. And the natural reaction for some of us to this problem, and the natural reaction for probably a lot of us that we've actually tried to do, is to fix it ourselves. Maybe we've tried to say, well, you know, if I've done wrong, the natural, logical solution is to just start doing right, and if my rights outweigh my wrongs, I call myself a good person, God will understand that I tried really hard, and then he'll forgive me. If I build up, I mean, we have all these really, if I build up enough karma, it'll be good. But the fact is, is that since we broke the law, we cannot be justified by the law. And it's, verse 20 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. 
and this is really unfortunate, I think, in the, in the church, because I think Satan is perfectly okay with you just doing your churchy religious things as long as you think it's saving you. As long as you think reading your Bible, going to church, going to life group, doing all these things that, that you think are good, and, and that certainly are good, but doing these things because you think you're earning your salvation, I'm sure Satan just wipes his hands and says, yeah, go ahead. Because we're not heading down the right direction. That's not the path to salvation is earning it ourselves. And don't get me wrong, those things are good. I obviously encourage those things. But only in the context of you understanding that they can't save you and seeing them for their true nature of being good and connecting to God. And so still, we're still left without a solution. And finally, that's brought us to the point of the solution. And this is kind of the exciting part I was talking about. We've established that we're far from God, that we can't save ourselves, that we need help. But finally, Paul turns it up, and, and we're going to finish out chapter 3 here. It gets a little wordy, but stick with me, and we'll, we'll, we'll do our best. Starting in verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law, by the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one. Who, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And so in the beginning, God warned Adam and Eve as he created them. He gave them the earth. Be fruitful, multiply. This is, this is yours to have dominion over. But be warned, don't do this one thing. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course we know Adam and Eve disobeyed God, did the one thing he told them not to do. And because of that, we may not always realize, but the instant that they did that, they deserved death. Not like in the future. The instant that they did that, they deserved death. It would have been good and just of God to give them death right there. But he didn't, and God had mercy. And in the same way, the instant that every other human after them had sinned, they deserved death. They earned it. But God had mercy, and he actually has passed over, he had passed over those sins. He did not give them what they deserved for their sins at that time. And so at that time, it would appear as though God is actually not a good judge. 
if he's not giving them what they deserve, if he's not giving them what he told them that they would earn, it would look like God is not a good judge. If there were a murderer in the courtroom, and he was, he was a convicted murderer, all we need now is his sentence. And we're waiting for the judge to, to give this murderer his sentence, and we're waiting and waiting. And Where's this judge at, man? He's, he's, he's hiding in the back. He's not coming out. People would start to wonder, well, is this judge ever going to do it? Is he ever going to uphold the seat that he said that, that he would hold and, and do the things that he said he was going to do? And so likewise, it would actually make sense for, at that time, people to wonder, is God a good judge? He has not punished sin yet. But this passage suggested that God had a plan. God knew what he was doing. And that God's standing as a good and righteous judge did not need to be questioned. He had a good and righteous plan. Verse 25 explains this and explains this plan. It says, God put forth, talking about Jesus, as a propitiation, fancy word for sacrifice, by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And family, one day we're all going to stand in God's courtroom. And as people who have been convicted guilty of sin, we would be right to deserve death. We would be right to deserve the punishment. But this is what makes God the good and righteous judge, is that he was not, he is not only the one who is just and the judge who rightly punishes sin, but he also became the justifier for those the justifier who paid the penalty for our sin. It's as if the judge in this scenario got off his bench, walked over to the murderer and said, buddy, you're free to go. I'll serve your sentence. You're free to go. And that's exactly what Jesus did. God came to earth, took on flesh, lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserved, Suffered physically and spiritually what we deserve. And so now our debt is paid because of his sacrifice on the cross. We are given new life through his resurrection. And so now God can finally, justly and rightly, look at us in his courtroom, see the sacrifice of Jesus, and declare us innocent. And we think of the courtroom situation where if a, if a judge got off and, and looked at a murder and said, you're free to go, buddy, I'll take it, we would think that judge is a lunatic. We would think that dude's crazy. But in reality, it's, it's not that God's crazy. It's that God, God loves us. He was willing to do this when we really didn't deserve it. And that shows that he loves us not because we've done something good for him, even that we can do something good for him, but solely based in the identity that he created us with. And the scripture says that we can have this forgiveness of sin through faith. And so the last thing I really want to talk about is really just what is faith? 
because faith is such a, a Christianese word that we toss around, and it's great. You know, we love faith. That's awesome. But if you don't know what it means to have faith, or if you don't even comprehend the idea, the word faith really doesn't mean much to you, and me telling you to have your faith in Jesus doesn't do you any good. And so I, I want to understand, what is faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 gives us a little uh, definition of faith, I would say. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. I'm going to read it again, actually. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And so what faith gives us is the confidence that God's promises to us are real. When we are not able to sense something but believe it to be true, that's faith. So I assume you all believe in gravity, right? You believe in gravity. Well, can you touch or taste or smell or hear or see gravity? No, you can't. But we believe that we have evidence for gravity because if I took a pen, I don't have a pen, but if I took a pen and I let go of it, the pen's going to drop to the ground. That's our evidence for gravity. We see that. But we also can't tangibly, tangibly sense gravity. And so guys, just because you didn't see the death or resurrection happen doesn't mean that it couldn't have happened, doesn't mean that we can't have faith that it happened. And also, maybe this one is the harder one for you guys, just because you cannot tangibly sense God's promise to forgive your sin, to take away your sin, and to give you new life, that does not mean that it's not true. And I would say that there's really good evidence for both of these claims. But you know what the best evidence is that someone has faith? It's the way that you, someone, re uh, responds to that faith. The best evidence for faith is the way that people live as a response to their faith. And so we go back to gravity. If you want to be convinced that I have faith that gravity is real, if someone brought in a million dollars right now and set it on the floor and said, all you got to do to have it is go jump off Great American Tower, I'm not doing it. Because when I jump off Great American Tower, I'm going to fall to the ground, die, and not sniff the million dollars. And so my response, you would think, million dollars, just do what he says. My response to having faith that gravity is going to kill me if I jump off of a building means that I'm actually going to say no to something that maybe the normal person would say, why don't you do it? And so likewise, the best evidence to the claim that faith in Jesus is the evidence of new life in people. Look at the millions of people across thousands of years, across thousands of, of countries, nations, cultures, races, all different types of people from all different types of backgrounds under the same banner of, of God, under the same banner of a gospel that we're all sinful, that all followed these sinful desires. We're actually enslaved by these sinful desires, but now live in new life, but now have victory over sin, victory over sinful addictions and pride and hate, and that comes as a response to their faith. It comes because they have the confidence, they believe that God has done this for them, and in doing so, they are given the Spirit. And the Spirit of God gives us the ability to actually live like Jesus and actually to glorify God. 
Look at the evidence of the people who have abandoned everything this world calls valuable. The money, the fame, the prestige, the power, the comfortability. All these, all people who have abandoned those things, who were mocked for abandoning those things, who were called stupid and crazy for abandoning those things, because that's what the world holds high. They abandoned those things to take this message of the gospel to all the parts of the world because they believed it and because their faith called them to action. And for all the stories of people who I talked about at the beginning who have actually defamed God's name, I have so many more stories of people who have followed God faithfully and have seen new life transformation because of their faith in Christ that Jesus bought for us. And so faith in Christ calls us to respond, and that is is really how we can see faith and the confidence that God's promises to us are true. And so this brings us right back where we began with the original question of of what is faith? How how does one have faith in Jesus? And so what does that look like? Well, first, as we've hit on for the past month, you got to be convinced that you're a sinner. You got to be convinced that you're in need of saving and that nothing you can do, you cannot scratch and claw your way to God. You cannot climb the mountain to God based on good works. You have to understand your depravity and that you're hopeless for yourself to get to God. And then once you realize that, you can repent of your sin. You see the deadly effects of sin. You see that sin leads to death and that uh, sin is against God and that God is worthy of being praised. And we put all this together and we repent from our sin. We turn away from our sin. And that may not be a, a perfect process, but it's from within your heart that you understand that this is not a path I want to follow anymore. We turn away from our sin and we denounce our sin. And then once we do that, we, we count the cost of following Jesus and we trust that Jesus paid the price for us that we couldn't pay. We believe in it. And just for a second, I just want to challenge you guys to just think about do you believe it or do you just say that you believe it this isn't an exercise of trying to get you to question your faith that's not necessarily my goal but I think it's good to take a second to think about do I really believe what I say or do I just say it because I know it's right or because I'm told it's right and you can kind of see that in your actions And finally, once you place your faith and your trust that Jesus died for your sin, this is the good part, and this is what we're going to, we're going to get to this in future weeks and months, and and I'm just scratching the surface here, but we get to live in this new life, and this new life changes us. This new life changes us. It gives us a desire to worship God, a desire to be in community with one another, gives us a desire to count it all as loss for the sake of following Jesus. And once you've done that, you you get to respond in this way. And finally, in verse 31, it says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So now that we're freed from slavery of the law, we can now love and uphold the law. We can live as creations who were made to worship the good and righteous judge.
And so uh, as the band, band can come back up and as I guess we close out, um, there are two places where you could be at here today, probably. Um, the first one is that you haven't done this. You haven't placed your faith in Jesus. And you could be all over the place in terms of that. You could be someone who still, as of this very moment, doesn't want anything to do with God, doesn't want anything uh, to do with it. You still not a hint of belief. Um, and first off, I'm, I'm very happy that you're here. But uh, during this time, I just want you to reflect on these words. Because if these words are true, it's the most important decision you could ever think about. What you're having for lunch or the football games after, those are great, but they're far, far less important than this decision right now. And so think about it. If you're someone who you're just not sure, you just, you just don't know what you believe, you have doubts, that would be a great time to, to go talk to one of the people in the back. I'll be back there, and the other uh, people in the prayer team will be back there to talk to you. Uh, we want to talk to you about this stuff, guys. Like I said, there's nothing more important. And then lastly, if you're someone who has done that, I just want you to reflect on how you can challenge yourself to respond to the faith that you've undertaken. Respond to it. To show evidence that you have new life. But there are many ways that you can do that. I hope that God convicts us of that as we get ready to worship. Lord, pray with me if you would. God, you are, you are faithful to us. You are faithful to give us what we need at any given time, Lord. And I pray that, you know, for a lot of us coming off of a, of a really cool trip at, at Fall Getaway, we might be encouraged, we might be discouraged, and then, of course, for the people who didn't even go, they might be busy and things going on. Um, Lord, just let us focus on you right now. Let us focus on you. Take all the distractions away from us, please. Convict our hearts of, of whatever we need to hear from you to one person, the assurance that your word says what it says, and to another the conviction to cast out sin out of their life and, and to step into the new life that you've purchased for them. God, give us that. Bless us in our worship that it would be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name I pray.